0: All right. Hi, everyone. It is the 2nd of June 2022. My name is Luke Thomas. I believe this is episode 118 of my live chat, the Luke Thomas live chat. I hope you are doing well on this Thursday. I am doing so terribly, so terribly. I would like to come on here and tell you I'm doing well. I'm not. I've had two horrendous days, uh, today being one of them. Um, So, I am going to try and soldier through this as best I possibly can, but it has been distracting and difficult, to put it mildly. So, just want to be upfront with you. Now, looking at the questions, I pulled them up here for today. We'll get to some TJ Dillashaw stuff. We'll get to some, um, I think there's some stuff about the Ultimate Fighter that I saw. Certainly some Max Volk three talk. So we're gonna we're gonna focus on that or whatever else is on your mind. Um, my normal computer. Died. There's a guy coming to repair it tomorrow. I don't even know what the hell is wrong with it, so I had to get a specialist in here. So I'm on my other computer today. I am not anticipating any issues, but... When it rains, it pours, right? So, thank you for being with me. I really appreciate it. Um, As you guys know, we'll go for about an hour on the free questions that I put up a thread for on Wednesdays. You guys fill them up, then I answer them on today. And uh, if you'd like to get a question... Uh, more specifically addressed you can leave a donation in the live chat and then i'll take a look at it after the end of the free hour and again for people who are new you're like oh you're paying to ask a question not really you're you're giving a donation and then sort of you can ask a question um in, in conjunction with it it's not really that's not really the way that it works um i had a thought by the way i would love to know your feedback especially if you want to reach me at luke thomas at gmail.com luke thomas news at gmail.com Thinking about moving the time slot for this live chat. I'm thinking about putting it on Tuesdays. Um, Thursdays have become something of a weird place to put them based on what's happening in the week and what happens on MK. Honestly, I'd rather do these almost on Sundays after fights, but I don't know how doable that is with my family time. But if you guys are interested in having this on Tuesday, a little bit earlier in the week, uh let me know if not that's fine too i'll I'll try and ask you around i'm not like hardcore committed to it but it's kind of an idea i've been kicking around a little bit i tend to think that tuesday might be um a little bit better for all parties involved but i'm not i'm not entirely sure about that so your feedback would be appreciated and it would be taken into consideration pretty strongly Um, i'll put up some polls as well to see what you guys think so all right um without further ado Let's make sure everything looks like it's supposed to I think it does uh, again I'm on the different computer so I don't really know how this is gonna go but it should be fine uh, although I can see a little bit of latency there nothing I can do about that all right let's get this party started uh, let's see here okay let's refresh and we shall begin Look, will TJ Dillashaw be in the UFC Hall of Fame? When I look at who's in now, I would say yes. For example, Bisping is in, uh, who has won two title fights in his entire career, with one of those being against a 46-year-old. TJ has five title fight wins and will likely be fighting for a belt again soon. What's your opinion on this? I've never given TJ Dillashaw into the Hall of Fame much consideration. You guys know this. I don't give the UFC Hall of Fame... I'm not here to dismiss it or say that people who are in it are somehow frauds or that no one should take anything from the UFC Hall of Fame. But it's just categorically, just to be very clear, it's not as prestigious as the other Hall of Fames. And and I know people who are in it are going to see this and be like, Oh... Luca is an asshole. Yes, I might be, but I'm not wrong about that. It's much more difficult to get into the other Hall of Fames. There's a whole different process. The NFL doesn't run its own Hall of Fame. MLB doesn't run its own Hall of Fame. This is the UFC's Hall of Fame, and so getting in is going to be a little bit uneven based on, you know, probably, um, you know, it's probably, I know that they've tried to get Frank Shamrock into the UFC Hall of Fame, and he wants nothing to do with it, so I don't know really what you're supposed to do in that, that case, but Obviously, if the company favors you, they'll put you in there. And if they don't, they probably won't. I think, you know, unless your achievements are just truly outstanding. So what I would say is part of the reason I think Bisping got in was, one, he was a high achiever. The other one would be that he was extremely important for, um, you know, that that UK market. And then beyond that, you know, he had a real interesting story uh, that I think a lot of people gravitated towards, right? Sort of kind of almost being there, almost being there, almost being there. And then like the last chapter finally breaking through you know I think that's a story that resonates with a lot of people and he did have some big and important wins along the way but to your point like if you want to find other fighters who don't have necessarily that kind of a claim but maybe when it comes to actually who they beat championship runs whatever they would have much more of a claim perhaps Dillashaw fits that bill perhaps perhaps others do as well um yeah I I suspect that he will get in all this concern about oh he was the CEO of EPO all that shit will go away it doesn't mean anything um now, if he has, like, if he bottoms out from here on out, I don't know. But if he reclaims the title, I would say it's almost, like, almost a guarantee that he would get in at that point. Also, I said this on MK, and I really want to repeat this here because it's just something that's so funny to me. Um, you know, we often hear about drugs and sport and how they're ruinous and they're bad for everything, which is just a total lie. Very little of that is, is true at all. There are obviously some harms and some hazards to anything, including drug use. But... Much of many of the claims around them are just total drug war nonsense. Anyway, one of the claims you'll hear is that, you know, um, you know, you can't really have a career in sport and then consistently use for whatever reason. You'll be caught, there'll be health consequences, blah, 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 blah. Um, or that, you know, th- there really is no way to lucratively climb your way to the top in any kind of reasonable degree. I just want to point out something. You had Marius Pujanowski, who is not just good at strongman, and by the way, it is a burgeoning sport that is very difficult to achieve at the highest level, particularly super heavyweight, uh, is one of the all-time greats in that sport. And then he goes over to MMA, and he's not quite, like, super amazing, but he's very good. He's, he's, he's quite good, actually. And it the whole time, it appears to me, he's probably <laughs> right now, and certainly you could not even remotely compete at the super heavyweight division without significant uh you know, real clear and important drug use. You just couldn't do it. So this guy's had a career, a long career. He's still in his 40s. He's out here competing. He was an all-time great in one sport and is pretty good in another one. Probably the entire time, safe to assume he's been using drugs the entire way, and it's been fantastic. He has, it's been, it's brought fans a lot of joy. His highlight reel was shown, his uppercut over Materla was shown left and right. I didn't see a single fan complain about, any drugs he may have taken. So like this idea that like drugs are anathema to sport achievement, not so much that you couldn't do it, obviously to performance enhancing, but that like, you know, um, a long career in them wouldn't wouldn't really be possible. It's like, well, I don't know what you're supposed to say about a guy like Marius Pujanowski. He has been doing it consistently <laughs> for a really long time and has had tremendous results and has had tremendous acclaim and has made a tremendous amount of money the entire way. And I'm not suggesting that you you could say, well, it's strongman and it's MMA, two kind of clown sports. All right, there might be something to be said for that. They're not as regal and prestigious as tennis or soccer or something like that. Fine, but there's a lane for everybody. And the point is not to turn the sport into into a world where uh, only the Marius Pujanowskis could win, but the point is that is there a a role for performance-enhancing drugs in sport out in the open, not merely as one that's prohibition? Quite obviously there is. This guy has been doing it for 20 years. (laughs) Like, quite obviously this is true. There is clearly a place for drugs in sport. Where that place is and how you put the lines up, fine, let's have a debate about it. But but the only answer is prohibition? Get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out of here with this Nancy Reagan bullshit that I have zero tolerance for at this point. Just fucking nonsense. Total nonsense, not supported by the facts at all. There is 100% a place, and it turns out if you're good enough by being an athletic talent and whatever else, on top of it, not only is there a place for it, there's a pretty fucking prestigious place for it on top of it. So, I mean, I hope folks really understand. You didn't see anybody complaining about PEDs looking at that highlight. You haven't seen anybody complaining about super heavyweights and strongman. You haven't seen any of those things. You've only seen that guy, for the most part, win. And people clapping and celebrating around it. And he seems to be happy with it. The fans seem to be happy with it. KSW seems to be happy with it. World's Strongest Man appears to be happy with it. I'm happy with it. Who are the victims here? Get the fuck out of here. Look, I just quit my first job out of college nearly two years ago this week. I have another job working for a family business. That I've worked for in the past They were able to offer me a full-time position I couldn't be happier I was wondering if you could tell any such stories About jobs that you wanted to quit, did quit Or some things that went into job switch decisions Yeah, the job at Vox I mean, I'm told that things at Vox are a lot better now I'm not here to go on some anti-Vox rant I've done that plenty of times I could do it easily again Um, But I am told that like after I left When the union There was no union when I was there At least if there was, it was I don't think I was eligible Because I had gone from full-time and when I realized that being full-time was not going to be a good choice for me I got I went part-time with them and then I went full-time with SiriusXM but because I went part-time it did not enable me to benefit from any kind of unionization even if it was there so I wouldn't have been eligible anyway but the point being is I'm told since the union came around life is a lot better there I mean I was working like a slave when I was there the entire time I had no life it was terrible for my health it was awful and so um finding a job where I had a little bit more work-life balance or at least another um situation was was you know not that i don't work a lot now but i don't work like i did then so that's a lot better i'm trying to think of other ones where i've quit yeah i mean the job where i was doing some speech writing here in dc was i was really unhappy and i think i realized i was going to be unhappy and that by being unhappy i was not going to do a good job right i mean i don't think you have to be like the world's happiest person to do a good job but you probably need to be reasonably okay uh, certainly if you're distracted by how unhappy you are for whatever reason that may be, you're not going to have high level of performance. I, I don't think unless you're just crazy, crazy talented, uh, hold on, this is an important text. Um, so I would say that uh, other ones that I quit, I mean, you know, the job I quit to then go to Vox full-time, which was the full-time First full time job I would had in MMA again I told you guys this before it was 2011 I was 31 years old at the time. Um, quitting the job, quitting the previous job, I needed to get to that one was a no brainer. I mean I, the only time that I really needed to to the, the two biggest quitting jobs in my life were one when I left speech writing that was one, and then the other one would be leaving leaving uh, either full time Vox or Vox altogether because they represented an important change for me to make a better choice about how I'm going to, you know, balance my my life. Um, but I don't know if I have any other bigger ones than that or any like what into what into job switch decisions. I didn't quit easily. The 2 year well I the, the, well, I did that for 3 years. I did the, the speech writing for about 3, but it was, you know, I had had a series of health consequences as a all my fingernails fell out in that job. I think I've told you guys this before, but I was so stressed by the nature of the work. Not that it was demanding, but like Told you guys this before. I thought that, like, you know, the only people in Washington, D.C. who need your help to write speeches for them are people whose industries are heavily criticized. I'll leave it at that. Or people who, or figures who are heavily criticized. So you can imagine if you're heavily criticized, you're, and when I, when I say heavily, I mean like, you know, the full weight of the Western press against you kind of thing. Um, you know, working for them made me feel terrible about myself. And so I thought, wow, going into MMA, this will be, you know, this will be a less, <laughs> this will be a less, um, not evil per se, but a less morally compromised um, industry. And in some ways that is true, but the petty routine of um, just total... You know, this is not an industry that takes, I think, moral reasoning very seriously. Not much, anyway. Uh, right now, Charles Oliveira is all the rage, this person writes. He has all the uh, all of MMA enamored with him in his recent wins. Some have even started putting him in an all-time great talks, however premature that it may be. My question for you is, if Islam Makachev goes out there puts on a typical Islam Makachev performance and dominates Olivera from bell to bell and finishes him in the second or third. Where would you put Islam in terms of his own greatness in your opinion? What would your reaction to seeing that be? I'd be a little surprised to see that. I mean, I think Islam might win, but I definitely feel like he's going to get some resistance along the way. And then does he sort of absorb all the recent praise that's been heaped onto Olivera? no. Part of Oliveira's praise is the, is the transformation. Yes, he is going in there and doing a lot of stuff, and of course there are a lot of new fans who maybe didn't see Charles Oliveira when he made his UFC debut, right? So there is some of that, but there are a lot of folks who have been around long enough to know, like, this guy used to be kind of a flake, and now he's going out there and just walking down, just engaging and putting him away inside of four minutes. I mean, that is an, an extraordinary transformation we were talking about the Bisping story right he was never a a has-been but he was you know almost there almost there almost there and then broke through in that last chapter it's that frustration finally coming into a position of success and acclaim and everything finally working you know that perseverance to move through that part of what it's not just transformation and perseverance it's the combination of the two um I think Bisping was a high achiever earlier than Olivera was but certainly the things Olivera is doing now are you know impressive in its own right but there's something to be said for that right like you thought they were x and then they turned out to be y so that kind of change has been you know big and important um which kind of explains what he's doing also you know there is just a lot of recency bias but the reality about what he's doing is extremely impressive I mean he's not winning by points you know I guess he beat Ferguson that way But, you know, he was stretching his limbs in ways that no one had ever done that to Tony before, and Tony only hung on there because Tony's tough as shit. right? I mean, that's a very, very difficult fight for him um, uh, to win outright, even uh, in the way that he was fighting it. But... um what I would say is, where would that put Islam in terms of his own greatness? To me, that's it. Gets back to like the Max Holloway slash Volkanovski versus Aldo conversation. Both Volkanovski and Al, um, and Max beat Jose Aldo, and in the case of Max, stopped him twice. So in that sense, like when they met, one guy was better than the other, pretty clearly. And again, you look at the Volkanovski fight with Aldo; it's not really close. Like Volkanovski wins that one, pretty much walking away, even though it went the distance, and Aldo didn't take like a beating or something. Um, so then, the the natural temptation is to say, "Oh, these guys were better than Aldo." But the, there's a, and I and I suppose, yes, yeah, certainly at the time that they met, that was clearly quite true. But the problem with that way of assessment is that when you look at the earlier, like when you look at their full title run, they're not the same. They didn't do the same thing to their peers when they had the time. Jose Aldo had a long run, especially going back to beating Mike Thomas Brown, uh, which is what he was called back then. Mike Brown, now the coach. And when he was the champion, and then from there on through his WEC reign into the UFC reign, and for as long as that lasted, and even losing to Conor, getting it back and beating Edgar at UFC 200 and so forth, you know, this went on and on and on. Um, no one has had a run like that except Aldo in that weight class. So, you know, certainly it is tempting to say when someone beats another one, it's extremely important. In the case of Oliveira, it also would be different to me than Max beating Aldo. Max beat Aldo, I think at the end of his prime or his featherweight prime, whatever you want to call that, because I still think he's doing pretty good work, obviously, at bantamweight. Um, But to beat Oliveira now would be like smack dab in the middle of his prime. So these conversations are a little bit harder to have, but I guess what I would tell you is I would weigh the actual achievement of who he beat and how he beat them against the duration of what they have done in the totality of their resume, either overall or in a particular weight class. And I think you have to balance those competing interests a little bit more nimbly. So when you are asked like, Where would that put Islam in terms of his own greatness? Well, it would probably make him champion, so that's pretty great. But, you know, that would be just winning the belt. He would have no reign, so to speak, to evaluate. What would your reaction be to seeing it? If he beat him in the way that you described, I would be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if he won. I would be surprised if he won the way that you're describing, which is, by the way, possible. I'm not suggesting it's crazy. And does he then sort of absorb all the recent praise? No, he would have to do his own. But if you can beat, I would say this, if you can beat Like, Oliveira is hot right now. If you can beat that guy right now, uh, certainly, certainly you would steal some pretty significant thunder. All of the praise, I don't know. But a shitload of it, yes. Let's see... Uh, Luke, could you please explain why Adesanya versus uh, Pereira would be different in the UFC as opposed to win in kickboxing? Before you call me a dipshit donk, yes, I'm aware they are two different sports and both will be able to employ grappling, wrestling, jiu-jitsu in ways they, they could not in the two prior fights with each other. However, while you have always pointed out how well Izzy's grappling game has grown, he still primarily uses uh, as a defense mechanism for when opponents initiate grappling with him. Yes, that is largely true. With other primarily stand-up fighters standing opposite him, would he even get to use that grappling in any meaningful way? Probably not, although maybe the clinch, right? I just feel we would get another kickboxing match, largely. And as Pereira has beaten Izzy twice, once by decision, once by KO, I'm just having a hard time seeing what would be different in the fight in the UFC. I do feel Izzy's stand-up is better suited. Versus MMA fighters, grapplers, than um is though Styles make fights. So a couple of things. One is there's just going to be a lot of differences that you have to really kind of account for. Especially for a guy like um, Izzy who has made a lot of adaptations from kickboxing to MMA to make all of that stuff work. Um, Pareda still seems like he has done some of that but isn't nearly as far along. The reason I bring that up is... There are going to be two really important, or actually three really important differences right off the break. Even if they don't go to the ground, that is still an, a real possible threat. Like the, the idea that you could just ignore training on the ground as part of a camp for a title fight with Izzy seems like a real bad idea, number one. You wouldn't want to prioritize it, but you would to not do it at all would be foolish. Uh, and I don't think that would be the case. But the bigger things I would say is, one, you're going from three minutes to five. Um, the distance in MMA is, actually there's, there's many differences. Let's go through them. One. Uh, three min- Five minutes instead of three. The distance you're going to stand at is not going to be the traditional kickboxing distance by virtue of all the other weapons that at least potentially you have to take seriously. Now, as the fight settles in, if nobody gets knocked out, that range could narrow a little bit, but I tend to think they're going to stand much further apart than they would in an ordinary kickboxing bout by virtue of weapons. Also, by virtue of weapons and space, you are now in an octagon. You're not in a, a literal uh, square, right? There's 90-degree angles in a ring where ring craft and, and how you can... Manage that is extremely important. A L- little bit less on so kickboxing, I think, relative to boxing, but I can't say that with any degree of certainty. Nevertheless, um, the amount of open space and then the distance MMA fights are fought at is going to change that complexion uh, a lot. And then also the gloves themselves, things you would ordinarily use to block or control in a kickboxing bout will not be nearly as available to you. I mean, th- I cannot tell you how little this provides with an MMA glove relative to a 12 ounce kickboxing glove, and or or or, a, or a, you know whatever the weight is the uh, that Glory uses, I don't even know anymore, um, but a giant boxing glove or kickboxing glove, it's not nearly the same level of protection. So the kind of defenses you can employ, the kind of tactics you can employ, the space you can employ. The amount of time you are requested to work, the ranges in which you are requested to work is going to change a lot of it. It's going to change a shit ton of it, right? There's just a lot more things that Izzy can do, especially um, uh, Shouts to Gabriel Varga has a great video on why uh, Izzy's style was good for kickboxing but much better for MMA. And a lot of it goes down to the way in which weapons are selected and combinations are thrown and the distance they fight at. It makes that evasion style that Izzy is quite good at not nearly as uh, valuable in kickboxing. It's a much more straight up and down. Um, there's there's good defenses you want to employ. There's slipping. There's shoulder rolling. There's weaving. There's all kinds of stuff that's still valuable in kickboxing, but not to the same extent. Um, but you know, you've seen Izzy do much better with this kind of lean thing. He's able to get going because he has a lot more space to work with. He's playing at much further ranges. Um, usually, he's got an opponent where you know they're not going to be have the same level of skill. So that. That may, some of that may get wiped away with Pereira. So the point being is if you have confidence in Pereira's chances, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But all of those variables, I mean, we don't even talk about this. The UFC has, for example, here's one thing you'll notice if you ever go to a Bellator show. The UFC has, um, you know, this is my phone, right? But the phone is a rectangle, right? It's a flat, here, look at it. It's a flat panel. The octagon is a series of flat panels all the way around. So if you're right in the middle of the panel, your view is somewhat obstructed by the weaving of the cage itself, right? The, the sort of metal pieces that make up the cage. But you have a, you you're looking at a essentially a flat object. The Bellator cage is a perfect circle. So even if you're right lined up with it, the very spot you're lined up with, you can see clearly. But even any peripheral movement to the side, it actually is quite blurred. I actually do not enjoy the Bellator cage. Um, I guess it doesn't matter if I'm watching on TV, but it really matters when I'm watching from a viewership standpoint. And more to the point, I've talked to a few fighters who have fought in both organizations, and they tell me the footwork has to be a little bit different between them. And that's just going from one kind of cage, similarly sized, to another cage of a similar size. Forget going from, you know, different rounds, different rules about clinching, by the way. There's all kinds of rules about that in MMA versus you know, kickboxing, um, you know, glory had a one handed clinch rule when I worked for them. I don't even know what it is anymore, but, uh, and you could throw one and then you had to let them go. You couldn't like, you couldn't, you know, grab a tie clinch, you know, in the sort of traditional way. And then like this, and then hold it. Um, and did you know, go to town in the way that like, for example, Anderson Silva did to rich Franklin. I mean, there's, and then they stand further apart by virtue of some of the weapons that's employed. Like, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot there. There's a lot that goes on um, that is gonna make subtle differences, but the accumulation of subtle and sometimes substantive differences is going to add up to potentially a pretty significant one. If Volkanovski beats Holloway in the trilogy, is the winner of Cater versus Emmett or Ortega versus Rodriguez getting the next title shot or vice versa for Holloway? Okay, so let's go through this. If Volk wins, I have a feeling he's gonna ask for a one fifty five title fight. I have a real strong inclination for that. I mean he was itching for it when I talked to him what was it, a couple of months ago or something at this point. And you beat you beat Max three times. Shit, you might have earned it in my view. Like (laughs) that's a pretty fucking difficult thing to do, right? So there's that. I mean you could say who else has beaten Max twice? Dustin Poirier. But Poirier is now up a weight class, and then the first time was literally Max Holloway's MMA or excuse me, UFC debut. So to beat him three times Would be like Forget it So if you do that I would say I'll say this If Volkanovski wins And Yair wins They might do that If Volkanovski wins And Emmett wins Maybe they do that Hard to say Cater Hard to say Yeah I think if Yair wins They'll do it If Max wins um, If Max wins Shit they might do a fourth fight But if they don't do that I think Yair is probably the one, because he's the only one of the, those two, Ortega and Rodriguez, who hasn't fought Max. Excuse me, Cater fought him too, I suppose. Uh, Emmett, I think, just has some real important work to do. Um, he's as talented as anyone in that division, but lost some time with some serious, pretty, uh, pretty serious injuries. So I would say that they're probably looking for Yair. Now, if, if Ortega goes in and blows the doors off of him, yeah, maybe. You know what? Maybe they do it. I, I, I would just say that what they're probably looking for is Volkanovski either 155 if he wins, um, Max versus... You could do Max Jair again because that first one was amazing. You could do Max Ortega because I think this one might be a little bit... Yeah, yeah, it's hard. You know what? There's a lot of different ways you could go. The one thing I feel pretty confident about, the one thing I feel pretty confident about is if Volkanovski wins, I think he's going to actively lobby for a 155 title fight. Someone says, I just moved to Silver Spring, Maryland. It's about a few miles north of D.C. Not even. Can you please recommend any sports bars in the DMV to watch UFC pay-per-views? Dude, I haven't watched a UFC pay-per-view at a sports bar in D.C. I think the last one I saw, and this is a true story, the last one I saw, I was actually with Mario Yamasaki. We watched um, Forced Griffin fight Rampage together. Uh, we were at a party, and we were both there. Uh, that's it. That's it. That's the last one I think I've seen. Uh, when was that? UFC ninety two or something? Maybe longer than that. I, I don't even remember what what that was. But uh, I haven't seen one since then. So, <laughs> I'm a forty two year old dad, bro. I don't even I don't even know what the sports bars are in this area anymore. Did you manage to catch Nadal versus Djokovic on Tuesday? Heard good things. Didn't see it. Look, is the UFC in danger of having a lackluster roster with the amount of random fighters that have overloaded fight night cards? Seems like there is not much up-and-coming talent as there has been in the past. Right now, there is not much interest outside of the top 15 in each weight class. Yeah, there's a lot of development that has to happen. Yes, dude, I've been trying to tell you guys. And I saw some folks respond with some fairly actually decent retorts, but I'll get to that in a second, which is, guys, a lot of these fight night cards, they're like a few UFC fights and then the rest of it is LFA level, which isn't to say trash, that's not what I mean, but it doesn't, what I'm trying to point out is like, you know, it's guys and uh, like right at the the very end of the minor leagues, what's the difference between them and the guys who just got signed to the minor leagues, probably not a whole lot of difference and they all need a lot of development anyway anyway. So partly what the UFC is trying to do is just aid in the development process, which, you know, how how monetizable is that so far pretty much? But, you know, I, I do hear a lot of customer complaints long-term. Um, but that's sort of what's happening here. And this is the point I've tried to make. It's like, would you rather watch, you know, low-end UFC or high-end Bellator? Now, some folks, I saw some folks saying low-end UFC. Now, partly what they said was that you know, To get Bellator, you have to go to Showtime, and therefore you have to pay for it, and a lot of folks didn't want to add in that extra cost, which I totally understand. If it's not a thing you either want to or can budget for, no one should expect it from you. Nevertheless, dude, the quality of high-end Bellator is much higher than the quality of low-end UFC. It just is. Now, the quality of high-end Bellator is probably, on average, not as high as the quality of high-end UFC. In fact, it's it's not. There's going to be some high-end Bellator that can match up with high-end UFC, but it's going to be few and far between. It's not going to be a lot of it. But this is why you also want to watch what other cages do, other rule sets do. There's going to be one 158 tomorrow. They're going to have all their different rule sets and all the different things that they do. Um, So, what I would say is, is like, you know, is UFC in danger of having a lackluster roster with the amount of random fighters they have overloaded on fight night cards? No. Because... (laughs) Because at least right now, they need those guys to power all the cards that they have signed up to offer to all of their domestic, a.k.a. ESPN and overseas broadcast partners, BT Sport, you name it. They need to fill them, and they need to fill them by making sure that there are enough fighters in each division who are being brought along to a sufficient degree that they can either get rid of them when they need to or turn them into something like prospects or move them with the food chain or just keep the divisions running but like if you're asking what the quality is there's a few UFC fights or a few UFC you know truly truly like UFC level guys and then a lot of it is just you know really good LFA and again that's not an insult to LFA dude LFA is a great promotion that does great work but it's you cannot say that that is on par with what the very best of what other organizations can offer it's not it's, mo- it's most certainly not Luke, I've noticed some in, in some discussions concerning fighter pay, there is an undertone that fighters should be paid less to, quote, keep them hungry and fighting more regularly, end quote. I personally find this kind of approach slightly repulsive from a moral point of view, but I can understand from someone who finds the UFC's matchmaking model entertaining. Yeah, I guess if you don't give a shit at all about the humanity of them, that's a great way to put it. Uh, I'm not saying you do, but like, in theory, in, you know, speaking proverbially. Do you think there is a way to mediate between what the fighters deserve in terms of fighter pay and what they want in terms of matchmaking and the desires of the consumer? And if so, what model might that resemble? Yeah, it's called boxing. (laughs) I mean, listen. uh, I have long been a believer that I would prefer to see an MMA union come around and... um, or at least a union for UFC fighters, and there could be a separate one for Bellator and everybody else. And through that union, and that sort of, you know, collective bargaining, and all all the things that go in with that, agree to a, a set of terms on likeness rights, on bonuses, on pay, on you name it. Now, a lot would change because then they would go from being independent contractors to employees, and when you're an independent contractor you ostensibly have a series of benefits that they by the way they don't currently enjoy like like to borrow from eric McGracken, i can't tell my gardener he can't go gardener for garden for somebody else i mean i don't have a gardener but let's say that i did i couldn't tell him that but that's what ufc effectively does so like they're not they don't even have the benefits of being an independent contractor but like forget that for a second if they get became employees i'm not sure how much they would have to they would have to weave in still some ability to say no because it's not like when they hand out the NFL schedule to the Bills and to the Commanders and to the Patriots and everybody else, they can just look at the schedule and say, "Oh no, we're not playing these games." Like they're gonna, you're gonna, you you ha- you're an employee of the team; you have to play those games. Um, so they would have to like put in some kind of measurements to still have some say over matchmaking. Otherwise, UFC could just tell them who they have to fight, and that's just the end of it. But in general, I thought that would be a much better, comprehensive way to make sure everyone's needs are met. There is a criticism to make of that model, which is that without Um, true free agency um, along with it that in a a league where you have other teams bidding for your services that's what drives up salaries. Without that kind of model you wouldn't be able to really you could drive up their pay somewhat through collective bargaining but not as much as you would if you really gave them the ability to be true independent contractors. But I have to tell you folks my, my belief in not so much in the value of a union but in the possibility of one has been absolutely shattered. I don't think it's I could be totally wrong. I've been wrong before. I'll be wrong again. I don't think that it's very realistic to expect the fighters to sign on to it. There is a profound fear, I think, of what um, might happen to them if they vote in favor of a union, whether those fears are rational or not. I think there is a significant amount of Stockholm Syndrome among the fighters who seem to be under the impression that this is a uh, uniquely advantageous situation to them which is hilarious um, and sad. And I think that there is what I would call actually fair trepidation, or at least, you know, a a real unclear sense of like, what would a union do for me? Um, But there is just a, and and I'm not going to call it a, like anti-union sentiment sort of implies uh, almost a informed political position that's not what I'm describing, but when I say anti-union, I mean it in the more loose sense of the term, like, well, what do I care if he gets anything, all I care about is myself, right? They're not speaking about like, well, unions in the labor market, we're not speaking like a labor economist one way or the other. What we're suggesting is that sort of, that that general sentiment about like, fuck that guy, I I, I don't care about him, I only care about me, that is pervasive in the sport, and as long as there's this lack of cohesion, even if they all do have mutually overlapping interests, How do you really get them there? The next best alternative is the boxing model. And I had this debate on Twitter with folks and there were some fucking morons. Dude, my favorite thing on Twitter is a fucking idiot who retweets me and wants you to know that I don't know what I'm talking about. But in their tweet, I had some fucking moron. Who was it? Magic Man MMA or whatever his stupid ass name was. He retweeted me being like, MMA journals don't know shit about boxing. Only the top boxers make more. It's like, dude, imagine thinking you're dunking on someone. And what you actually do is offer up the most naive, simplistic talking point that isn't even exactly 100% true. It's it's mostly true, but not entirely true. And uh, actually, it's not true at all. Part of it is true, but there's a big part of it that's not. But it's the most naive, simplistic talking point that actually underscores how little they fucking know and they want you to not be able to discern the difference so that you can just decide that you know general media antipathy for no good reason is a thing that you should do. What a bunch of fucking clowns. Full of clowns everywhere. Guys, the boxing model relative to MMA, at least as it currently stands, it is inefficient. It is clunky. It is bureaucratic. And it's got other problems, too. The sanctioning bodies, while they fulfill a very significant and important role, they have abused their their position in more ways than one the the fact that promoters are tied to networks is not great and the networks don't want to work with one another especially when one is streaming and one is pay-per-view it just creates a lot of complications i'm not here to tell you that they're not meaningful very good criticisms of boxing or that everything that they do is um, you know beyond reproach or something like that like oh this is the best model but what you what everyone seems to not realize and what I really got to get you to understand is, yes, if I wanted to do all my shopping through Amazon, could I do that? Including groceries, for example, household items, furniture, beds, electronics, fucking toe spacers, fucking iPods, earpods, whatever the fuck they're called, anything, glasses, you name it. Could I do that? I can get almost anything on Amazon, but can we really say that long-term consumers overusing Amazon to meet their consumer needs that this is going to be good long term for consumers or at a bare minimum the the uh, the various markets that are affected by this Giant, in the case of your Amazon, monopoly overtaking it. You cannot make that claim with a straight face. You cannot. You cannot say long-term monopolization benefits consumers. Every element of monopolization tells us the opposite. And certainly there's a debate to be had about whether the UFC is a monopoly. But if it is not, it is in my view that it is. It is damn fucking close. And right now, they are very good, and I will admit, about matching consumer demand. But over time, that's going to be a little bit harder to do. because Some of the cracks in the, in the facade are beginning to emerge a little bit themselves. Over time, that cannot be said to be good for consumers. Uh, That will take some time for it to truly emerge unless something changes. But more to the point, I go back to this all the time. It's like, dude, the process in boxing is inefficient on purpose. And it's inefficient because they have made it bound by rule of law to empower the different power centers so that there is at least some semblance of parity. And you can find any number of ways in which that is lost. But what you can't say is that there is there is better parity between talent and promoter in MMA. There is, if anything, fucking less. If anything. And this claims about like all this bullshit about you gotta keep them hungry and boxers are overpaid. Dude, this is just Gordon Gecko 1980s fucking bullshit. There ain't an ounce of truth to any of it. None. Zero. <laughs> like these, it's just, you know, it's like, hey, how do you lose weight? Well, you have to make sure that you have fewer calories uh, going in than going out. You have to measure this in a sustainable way. And, you know, you have to have your diet locked in and uh, a suitable amount of water, a suitable amount of, you know, activity and whatnot. These are all the ways in which we know for a fact you can lose weight. Oh, how about if I, if I sun my perineum? How about if I take this magic fucking alkaline water? It's like it, it, all of that voodoo bullshit, including, you know, you got to keep them hungry. That's all a mindless distraction for mindless people. That's what that is. That's, that's the low-hanging fruit for idiots. For anybody who is even reasonably discerning, it is quite obviously that is some kind of, frankly, infantilizing tactic That is insulting to the fighters, if you ask me. But if you ask them, they seem to love it, I guess. But to me, it's infantilizing to them. That they're, you know, they're so fucking stupid, according to this way of thinking, that you actually have to starve them or, you know, make them suffer to get more out of them. You can make someone suffer for a short period of time, and they can persevere through it. I mean, mean like, real deprivation. You can do that for a short amount of time and get sometimes outsized results. But over the long term, you are most certainly going to get the opposite of that. Deprivation and the will to persevere, that Count of Monte Cristo shit, there's a window on that, homie. There's a window on that. You cannot do that forever. And the longer that goes, and by the way, most of the people who ever prize fight will not be champion. Most of the people who prize fight will not be a top 10 or top 5 fighter, the vast majority of them. You're going to keep all of them hungry. The argument is about what are they entitled to by virtue of how much revenue is generated and their role in it. End of argument. Everything else about like, well, you got to fucking put scorpions in underwear so they crush their balls in the middle of fights and that's going to make them fight harder. I mean, it's just... it's the, Who who has been hit in the head with a tire iron to the point where they think this sounds convincing? This is convincing to nobody who has taken Economics 101. This is not convincing to nobody who has even a decent ability to reason through some of these problems. This is convincing to people who have no idea what the fuck they're talking about and they're expecting a powerful person to tell them what to feed or to what to accept like a baby bird being fed this because they have no other basis upon which to make any kind of uh, informed judgment. That's it. That's it. That's That's all that that is. That is just a stupid tactic for stupid people to trick them to never having to think through this problem because thinking through problems is actually a little bit difficult sometimes. Now, it's not all that easy all the time. You have to kind of reason through it. How much money is generated? What is their role in generating it? What are they owed as a consequence? That's the only issue. That's the That's the issue right there. So, all this shit, like, <laughs> you know, you gotta starve them. Like, how do you beat a cold? You gotta, you gotta, um, you got to drink breast milk to beat a cold. Or you can just get some rest and drink some water. Luke, in the last live chat, you said that MENA countries, that would be Middle East, North Africa, uh, internal oppression is not the same as Western countries' external oppression. No, I don't think I said that. If I said that, I didn't mean to say that. I'll finish the question, though. Does the mere fact that MENA, again, Middle East, North Africa, so we're talking, you know, uh, all the way from... Morocco to Saudi Arabia and, and in certain cases beyond um, is internal as opposed to Western countries being external. Justify the claim that it is wrong for UFC and others to hold events in MENA countries and okay for them to do so in Western countries. If I said that, then that clearly that would be wrong. Let me let me just sort of say what I was in my head anyway. No, if you wanted to make an argument about what Western countries have done through their colonial um, or otherwise, you know, imperial aims, yeah, I mean, the, the list of horrors would not be very difficult to line up. They're, they're they're endless. And by the way, ongoing. They're ongoing. That's not the claim. The claim is that internally, so relative, like who treats their people better with, for example, um, measurable forms of freedom. Freedom of, of religion, to practice religion safely. Freedom from... Um, spying, freedom, from, uh, freedom to assemble, freedom of speech, um, also the basic sort of Bill of Rights fundamentals, which country does a better job of, of holding them, the United Arab Emirates or the United States? Now, the United States is going to have a lot of problems there, but the, the record there is not going to be tantamount. They're not going to be equivalent whatsoever. They're, they're not at all. Um, in fact, I am not at all afraid of where I live right now and 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 traveling to other Western democracies or, or other places in the United States. I would actually be very, probably not travel to the UAE based on like uh, mean things I've said about them on Twitter. And you could say, Well look, that's kind of crazy. Except it's not. They're actually detaining a Lebanese doctor for insulting them on Twitter. See, it's hard to have a real conversation about how they treat each other internally. Uh, without really a- acknowledging the facts of the case. If you're trapping a Lebanese doctor because he was mean to the government on Twitter, <laughs> what what is it you'd like me to say about that? And he is hardly alone. There are dozens just like him. In fact, they have been warned, not merely by the United States, by other Western governments. If you have said nasty things about the UAE at any point on social media, you might not want to consider traveling there. Who has said that about the United States for all of its motherfucking problems? Even Glenn Greenwald, who has been... Reporting on, you know, government malfeasance at the highest level can still come and go as he pleases from Brazil uh, to here and back. He just did it recently. Sorry, these are not equivalent things. You are not going to make the argument in any kind of real way. And I've been to a lot of these places. I've been to occupied Palestine. I have been to Israel. I've been to Jordan. I've been to Saudi Arabia. I have been to Egypt. I have been to uh, Lebanon. I've been to... um, Where else in the Middle East have I been to? I've been to... uh, I have to think about that more where else, where else I've been. But I've been to a fair number of these places, certainly relative to other Americans. You're not going to make the argument that these are the same kind of freedom-preserving, democratically-inclined um, governments that do for their citizenry, at least on some kind of basic level, uh, what the United States does. Which, by the way, I want to be very clear about this. That does not absolve the United States from all of its various problems. But, mm-mm. Egypt's record on human rights internally to 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 their own dissidents is not going to be the same. It's just it's just not. Was the Kovalev fight for Canelo fool's gold in terms of his ability to fight at one seventy five? Yeah, a little bit. I think so. I think that's right. I think. you I mean, go back to the Kovalev fight. Canelo was losing it up until the eleventh. Not not the entirety of it, but, in, but I think I think it was like six rounds to four for Kovalev, something like that. And, uh, and then he got blasted out in the 11th. But Kovalev was a little bit washy towards the end there. And, by the way, Kovalev, I think, did not get paid by Triller. Revolutionizing that business model, huh? <laughs> what's your <laughs> what's your revolution for the business model? We're just not going to pay him. That's our revolution. We're just not going to fucking pay him. Um, okay. We'll see. Maybe they will pay them in the end. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I think so. Luke, any tips on negotiating your salary with your bosses? I am two years into a career in public accounting and have a performance evaluation coming up on Friday. Yep, I know exactly what to tell you. Have a very clear sense of what your number is. I'm going to make up a number. You might make more than this. You might make less than this. I'm just going to pick this number because it's easy to do the math from this. Let's say you make 50000 a year, right? Let's say you want to go in there and let's assume that your goal is to get to 60000 Maybe it might be more, but we're just playing with the numbers for a hypothetical scenario you want to go in there and you want to ask for 70 you want to over ask and you have to have dude let me just be very motherfucking clear with you right here dude no one is going to advocate on your behalf and if they can take from you they will your employer does not love you they're not going to love you back your job is not going to love you back you need to go in there and fucking take it and that's and i don't mean like be rude and demanding and fucking pounding your fist on the on the table that's not what i'm suggesting but you need to be your own best advocate if you were If you could send another person into the room on your behalf, what would you ask for? And the strategy would be always ask for more, knowing that they're going to bring the number down. If you're trying to get to 60, ask for 70. I should ask for 75. What's the worst they're going to tell you? No? Okay, then they tell you no. You know. uh, Also, you might want to know what your performance evaluation is to some extent, assuming you've done a good job. Now, if you haven't, then all of this is off. But if you've done a good job, if you've been really valuable for them, and you've been on the job for a little while, and you're asking for a raise, then fucking ask for it. Then ask for it, and if they don't want to give you one, start looking for a job somewhere else, and either take that job or take that job offer, and then go back to your current place and be like, match it. If they don't want to match it, leave. (laughs) No, no one, no one. Your boss is not. Look at me. Oh, I like my boss. I had drinks with him one day. He seems nice. He met my kid. He met my significant other. Whatever. Your boss doesn't give a fuck about your life. Not because they're mean, just because they're your boss. They're gonna look out for their own skin a hundred times out of a hundred, they don't care about you. So if you're going to advocate for yourself, do it the right way. Be be professional. Number one, be professional. Have a clear presentation for why you deserve a raise in, in mind in reference to you know, documented excellence on the job, right? Have a clear number about what you want to get to and then go above that when you're asking. Again, what's the worst they're going to say? No. Let them say no. Be strong. Do it. Clear-minded. Professional. Straightforward. And then see what they do. And if they don't want to bend to it, go find a place that's going to take care of you. Luke, I recently finished the new HBO miniseries, We Own This City, about a corrupt Baltimore task force. It's excellent and would recommend with DC being relatively close to Baltimore. I was wondering if you would witness or at least in your opinion on the city's long-lasting issues with police corruption and reform. You're like the 50th person to tell me I need to see this movie or a miniseries. Everybody is telling me to watch this. I've not seen it yet. I don't have any larger comments about it, but I'm going to make a note about it. I cannot tell you how many folks have told me to go see this. Luke, I make my MMA debut this weekend on June 3rd. Oh, shit. For Apex FC in Kansas City. Any advice for my debut match? I've boxed before, but this is my first time stepping into the cage. Shit, man, what am I going to tell you that your coach is not going to tell you? Um, take a deep breath, <laughs> you know? Mind your P's and Q's. Stick to the game plan. Try to have a little bit of fun. Be calm, but be ready, right? George St. Pierre, what did he always say? It's okay to have butterflies in your stomach before a fight, but you want to make the butterflies fly in formation, right? That's the issue, Yeah. So do that. I wish you... C- come back next week and tell us how it goes. I'd be very, very curious to see. I wish you nothing but the best. And I'll put a star by this, actually. That I hope you do well. I really mean that. I really, really hope you do well. Luke, how far do you think MK can go? And what do you actually think will happen? Love the show. You know what, man? I have long thought that... Um, uh, I've long believed that, you know, yo, you got to have some... You have to have a. You have to know. You have to have visions about where you want to go and like you know, race towards that. I don't know if that's true anymore, man. That didn't really work out for me very well. Um, I've had a lot of uh, ups, but that model of career growth, like oh, I'm just going to imagine what it's going to be and then work really hard to get there, even with a very specific plan about how to get to the, it, it, didn't really. It, nothing ever seemed to work out the way it was supposed to. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, but definitely different. So how far can it go? I don't fucking know, man. I really don't. Um, I love it. I'm going to keep building. Um, I don't know. I honestly don't know. This one doesn't have a thumbs up, but it's got Vinnie Paz. Okay, I started listening to Vinnie Paz because of your Instagram stories and became a fan, but was a bit disappointed when listening to the End of Days track. I'm glad you brought that up. We talked about all sorts of conspiracies, some of which have been debunked. How do you manage to separate the artist from the art? Um, he has walked almost all of that back in his new album. His last album, or was it the Jedi Mind Tricks album? I think it may have been the new JMT album, the last one. He basically realizes that all of it was nonsense and he kind of walks it back uh, and talks about his growth and maturity as, through the process. So, if that makes up a, b- a little bit of a difference, take that for what it's worth you have any more fight or fight or breakdown vids planned? Yeah, of course I do, folks. Of course I do. I'm just, I'm struggling a bit right now, to be honest with you. But yes, I do. Of course I do. Um, there's just a lot going on. All right. Luke, top five stand-up comedians all time. Can I just tell you that the worst thing that ever happened to stand-up comedy was that stand-up comedians got podcasts? <laughs> I mean, that's not universally true. There are a couple of like, um, there are I would more than a couple. There's probably a few podcasts from stand-up comedians that I like. But what I found was that like their final product tended to be something pretty interesting and pretty good, whether you agreed or disagreed. But the uh, the BTS stuff, the behind-the-scenes stuff, the early stage, them thinking it through, shit. I have left found out that, that has left me very much wanting about their intellectual abilities. Um, just a personal opinion. Top five stand-ups. Let's go. No particular order. Bill Hicks, Patrice O'Neill, Richard Pryor, George Carlin. Ooh. Who would be number five? Mm. That's a tough one. Maybe Bill Burr. Maybe. Um, I don't know. I don't know who the fifth one would be outright. Maybe Bill Burr. Maybe. I'd have to think about that. I used to really, really, really like Nick DiPaolo, but he kind of went off on a very angry, weird tangent. Um, I told you guys, I like that dude. Uh, what's his name? Stavros Halikas? Or his name is Stavy baby. That dude is fucking hilarious. He, he makes me laugh. But um, all-time, yeah, I guess I'd probably go with those five. Something like that. Uh, Luke, great work on the Brady interview If you could guarantee one MMA figure to come on the show Who would it be? I don't really give a shit who comes on the show To be honest with you Other than people who want to have an honest conversation I Most MMA interviews, the vast majority you see Are just total bullshit Just total kabuki theater Not real, people not telling the truth to each other And you know, again, I've engaged in that too it's Almost like zo- zombie walking my way through the industry But it's just nonsense And so, I don't really want to do that. You guys know I don't want to do that. Time to time, I guess I'm forced to do that, but I really don't like doing it, and I've tried to avoid it best I can. Um, Anybody anybody who's interesting who would be willing to talk about things in a real kind of serious way. Other than that, I don't don't really want to talk to them. Thoughts on Dillashaw's comments on Paddy's work ethic. In short, he said his habit of blowing up between fight camps will lead to major health issues and shows a discipline lacking in being a champion. I tend to agree... The time he probably has to spend on road work To get his weight down Could be better used if he stayed in a relatively good shape Year round in his skill development I mean, what I would say is I don't think Patty's that young How old is old Patty? 27 Yeah What I would say is um, You know, if you're 27 You can probably get away with shit like that In the way that he can I think the way that TJ said it was Quite mean Like, oh, he likes diabetes It's like, okay can we relax with that shit, please? But in terms of his, like, you know, I just don't see... John Jones is, like, the only one I've ever seen, like, blow up a lot between fights. I mean, yes, all of them kind of gain weight. All of them get a lot bigger, and then there's a lot of process. But not to the extent that you see from Patty. Patty is, is a little bit unique in that regard. So what I would say is that, like, you know, do I think it's hindering his career right now? No, I don't. Do I think that as he ages, and then by the way, it's going to be harder to do that in your body. You might have to move up a weight class. Do I think as he ages, and if he actually gets pretty good, do I think that he can do that? No, I don't think he can do that. He'll have to make a change. But for right now, is it worth like killing him over? No. Look, if you were advising Connor which of the following fights to book for his return, what would you book? Diaz, Masvidal, Chandler, or Ferguson? Probably Ferguson. Okay, of the four, I'll rank them one to four. By the way, any of them would be amazing. Right. But I'd go Ferguson, Ferguson, Diaz, Masvidal, Chandler. Now, that could be wrong because you might say, oh, I think Connor could KO Chandler easier than he could KO Masvidal, maybe even Diaz. That might be true. But you're going to, if I was advising him, I think along those lines, like, uh, I think Ferguson is a lot more winnable now than it once was. Not to say that Ferguson couldn't win, but more winnable now than it once was. And then Diaz and Masvidal would be, you know, you already beaten Diaz, uh, and Masvidal would be, maybe I put Chandler then Masvidal, but Masvidal would be a much bigger check. So hard, hard to know exactly. Look, nothing but respect for what Glover has done, but is it unfair to feel like light heavyweight is a bit diminished when guys like him and Jan are at the top of the division? A little, but maybe not as much as you might think. I'd have a tough time picking either of them over 2015 versions of Jones, DC, Gus, or Johnson, and I'm not sure if any, many of those would be close. Have Glover and Jan improved that much? Yes. Or is the division just in a lull while guys like Yuri and Ankalaya ascend? It's a little bit of both. Consider Jan Blachowicz. This was something that uh, forget who it was on Twitter that brought this up, but it was something that I told you guys about in live chats previous to this. I've been bringing it up. I was supposed to do a breakdown, never did, but it was one thing that I saw on the tape, which was one of the reasons why Jan had success over Izzy was he was able to block uh, a lot of, and check a lot of the leg kicks. Right, he is one of the best kick checkers I've ever seen, and once he starts doing that, they throw the the kicks less and they resort to other forms of offense. And for a lot of the guys who throw a lot of leg kicks, this is not universally true, but it's common, their punching ability, absent leg kicking in conjunction with it, is not nearly as good. And so he forces these guys into different ranges and weapon choices where they're not the same kind of fighter as themselves by virtue of being an extraordinarily good kick checker. Leg kick checker. He's so good at that. It's maybe one of the best ones I've ever seen, and I mean that quite genuinely. Like, Jan Blachowicz did to Adesanya what nobody does, and he did it by stopping the vast majority of the leg kicks. You know, I've said this before, dude. You guys want to beat him, the Whitaker fight, the Romero fight, so many of his fights. He may not do all the kind of stuff that he did you know, to Derek Brunson or Paulo Costa, but he does the steady accumulation of leg kicking over and over and over, and sometimes those are the only things you can really judge around on, and he's clearly got the better of them there. Well, then I guess he wins. You have to take that away from him. That's exactly what Blahovich did. He took it away. Now, again, in the wrestling later on, that played a big role too, but that was big. That was huge. That was that was fight defining. He did that. And I don't think he ever gets credit for it. Glover, conversely, you know, to be this competitive this late into your career, this early into your forties, is extraordinary. And I think I don't think his skills have grown a ton, but I think the way in which he prioritizes which of his skills are the most important at them at the right time has that level of IQ so to speak has gone up a lot. Now, to your point, would 2015 John Jones still beat either of them probably? Probably. So, you're right to feel that they you know, are these the guys who are just as good as John and DC? Now that John and DC are gone. Probably not in that sense, but as I mentioned, I think they're better than before. And also, you know, when you have a singular figure or one or two of them kind of dominate a weight class, and then they move on. It takes time for the weight class to kind of circle, I should say, cycle through itself. And you're seeing that with Ankalaya. You're seeing that with some of these other guys coming up. So I think you're right to say that they're not the same. That's fair. But I would be a little bit cautious about dismissing, like, nobody gets to a weight class title. I mean, you can say the Nico Montano case, but that was when they just started the weight class. Talking about like an established weight class. Dude, I don't give a shit who you are. You're not going to get to a weight class champion, championship um, easily unless you're very, very, very good. Very good. <laughs> Luke, of the three undefeated ranked welterweights, Hamzat, Brady, and Rockmanov. Is there one whose tools and style stand out as being able to provide not only a title-winning run, but a title-sustaining run? We don't know. We don't know. Do Hamzat looks like he's got a lot of abilities, but he fought like a dumbass against Gilbert. We need to see if he can tighten that up. Brady is obviously an absolute fucking hammer on the ground. We talked about this in person, but, you know, the fight against Chiesa, getting touched up on the feet the way he did, having his nose broken, which, of course, is a big factor, but he didn't get to showcase... I think the well-roundedness that he believes he's capable of. In the case of Rachmaninoff, he's looked pretty good everywhere, but we haven't seen anyone provide like a sustained offense against him who's got a decently high level of ability. Prezerish kind of just folded, right? Uh, he would have been a decent test, but he just folded. So the problem is, it's like which one of these can do it in a title-sustaining run? I have no fucking idea. We have we don't. from what we've seen from them, it's been impressive, but we've seen either glimpses of weak, like real weaknesses, or just not enough glimpses of the overall totality of their game to be able to, to declare that. Now we've got Brady, I don't know what's going to happen. Hamza, we're going to have to see. rockmano has got this Neil fight coming up. So we're going to get a lot better of a test here pretty soon. We'll have much better information there. Still not enough, but probably a little bit of a better case to say. But, uh, by the way, he goes, all of them possess exceptional potential and could eventually win a title, but who has the best set of tools to defend the title multiple times? I, don't, I honestly don't know. I, I mean, I, I've gone back and forth on all of them. I think Brady's got the best like, submission-oriented ground game of them. I think Hamzat is probably maybe the most physical of all three. I think Rachmanov has the most well-rounded skill set. Uh, but that you can be well-rounded and still have glaring weakness against elite opposition, so we don't really know. As an aside, I recently moved out of Hartford, Connecticut, after five years in that fever dream of crackheads juxtaposed with trust fund kids. Amazing BC chooses <laughs> to stay in that state, but I guess when you grow up in misery, you don't ever really understand <laughs> How miserable you really are. That's fucking hilarious. Yeah, I don't like Connecticut that much. Uh, all right, let's see what you guys have for paid questions, if there are any. I think it's time. All right, let's see. Okay. Uh, not that many today. Okay. Luke, I live in Colorado and I'm not bashing on Utah, but why the fuck is the UFC going to Salt Lake City for Usman's next fight? Could make Denver like UFC 267 do Rose versus Andrade. She promised to fight her in Denver plus Gaethje. I think they've been to Denver a bunch. I think they're trying to go to not newer markets because I think they've been to Salt Lake City before. At least they tried to go, but they probably want to begin to massage some newer, underdeveloped markets. Denver is a much more developed market. Hi, right, Luke, some of your favorite uh what are some of your favorite Kurosawa films other than Ron? Have you seen Yojimbo? Yes. Hidden Fortress, yes. And High and Low. I finished High and Low again for like the 50th time last week. The last scene in High and Low is incredible. Yes, I've seen all of them. Seven Samurai is another good one. Um, Red Beard is another good one. Um there's a bunch. There's a bunch that are good. Someone says, sorry about the rough patch. Thanks for the content. Excited for everything Max Volk 3. Yeah, me too. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. Sorry if I'm being a a Debbie Downer. Sometimes you have good days. Sometimes you have bad days. I have had a series of very bad days. Took your advice in January of 2021 and bought a Thomas Pink shirt when you mentioned it on your podcast. Just moved to Nova. Went to the inn at Little Washington. Based on your recommendation, best food I've ever had. Yeah, it's but expensive. I told you guys when I went there, I didn't make much money. I didn't know how much the food was, and I brought a date along because it was my sister's birthday, and it was three fifty a person. I was like, I don't know how. I think I had to sell shit to make rent that that month. This was a long time ago, like in the in the aughts. I think like two thousand seven or something. I was like, holy shit, I'm so poor. Um, but it, food was good. Normally miss the live chat, so don't have the chance to leave a donation. Thanks for all the great content. Thank you, Jack. I appreciate it. All right. Everyone's asking about my BJJ background, which I've discussed a thousand times. Uh, what's left of my cartilage? I don't think my cartilage is the issue. Um, but anyway, what are you going to do? Uh, Luke, it's my 30th birthday today. Happy birthday. Any advice for a guy with no kids or significant other heading into this new chapter of his life? 30s will be better than your 20s. In general, you should know yourself a little bit better, and in general, you should make a little bit more money in your 30s than you did your 20s. And you should still have many, not all, of the same athletic benefits, at least up to 35 or so. You should be pretty similar. So all I would say is it's almost a chance to do your 20s over again, but a little wiser, a little bit richer, and a little bit... um, A little bit more self aware. Embrace it. I would give if someone was like, could you be if you could be twenty five or thirty again, what would you be? I would I would take I would take thirty. I think from a business standpoint, Danny made a mistake allowing Connor versus Floyd. Sure the UFC made money, but Connor's MMA career was shortened. Do you agree? Maybe. Also, the other part that is it spawned all of these like not copycats. There are some people trying to do, you know. Obviously, boxers versus MMA fighters or whatever. But I feel like it spawned all of this. Well, we can't quite give you boxing and we can't quite give you MMA. What else can we give you that's something kind of like it? And all of the various forms that looks like. And I don't know that that really benefited the industry all that much. It certainly made it bigger. But it seems like it created... it. The one benefit to it all is that it put the MMA and boxing worlds together in a way that nothing ever had previously they had always been enemies and now they're not um and now they want to make money off of each other but did it mess with connor's career hmm. maybe i it's hard to say it definitely it definitely brought mma and boxing closer it definitely created a lot of like copycat ish type of um Promotions or sports or competition types. And it may have hastened the end of Connor's career by virtue of um, the amount of money and acclaim he made. It's possible. It's possible. Look, you said that considering Shevchenko as the GOAT is a hipster take, she beat three former champions and the current bantamweight champ. Who's the current bantamweight champ? Uh, Pena, yes. What makes this such a hipster take? Uh, because I don't think her record of dominance is as good as Nunez's or even Cyborg's. You'd have to just roundly disregard the length of resume and the quality of competition. And to your point, hers is pretty good too. But I think it, it's it's less hipster and more just premature. Because to your point, like she's certainly on a very good path. But... I just feel like it's very... I feel like people are like, oh, no, 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 what you're not thinking about is what Shevchenko has done. I'm like, no, I'm thinking about it. I, I recognize how valuable it is. I don't consider that on par with what Nunes has done. Again, we're not talking about who won each fight. We're talking about the totality of things. And even though Pena beat Nunes, we'll see what Nunes does next time. And also, you know... Um, there's a question about like how motivated Nunes. We'll have to see. But it's not just like, again, it's not just Max beating Aldo. It's like, what did Max do as a champion in this weight class? Right, There's some differences there. Do you feel Brazil has lost a step as an innovator of effective MMA technique? I think Dagestan and neighbors are innovating the most. Yeah, but if Brazil's lost a step, so has the U.S. Like, uh, yes, I agree that the sort of cage control, Russian style of wrestling... Is definitely the most innovative thing happening in MMA today, but that will run out, too. Everyone kind of takes turns. Japan used to be a big innovator. Um, For a while, the U.S. was a big innovator, especially with all the guys from wrestling coming over. Bo Nickel, by the way, makes his MMA pro debut tomorrow. Um, But it wouldn't just be Brazil. All right, I'm going to ignore the second part of this stupid ass question, but I'll answer the first part. Luke, what changes do Volk and Max need to implement in the third fight? I don't think Volk needs to do hardly anything different. The things he did the first two times were great, it won him the fight both times. The question is, what is Max going to do? I've sort of been over this before. I think with Max, um, I think Max is going to have to find a way to make it ugly. I think he's going to have to find a way to clinch. I think he's going to have to find a way to find the back. I think he's going to have to find a way to move into the line of fire and take risks. I think if you just try and play at range with Volkanovski, it simply will not work. He's too clever about building offensive sequences together. He's too clever about feinting and moving and changing angles and switching stances and thinking he's gonna go left and he goes right, thinking he's gonna go low and he goes high. If he has room to do that and he has space and time to do that, he's going to do that on everybody. How do you take away the room, time, and space? You have to get up in his face, and you have to have a different kind of phase of the fight. Easier said than done, obviously, but I think you're going to have to do it. Even if you just sort of shoot for a takedown, and then you just clinch, you have to can't allow him to clinch break, and then you have to go to work from there. Like you, you can't you can't allow him to just move. If he can move, and he has time to move and set up, I don't I don't think anybody can beat him. Uh, World. Well, strongest man was great despite no stream just updates from big laws felt bad for novikov they should have gone on the, on the count back not just who won on stones for second yeah he did set a record what was it for on the on the clean for like the flintstone bar whatever they call it he he uh or the jerk excuse me on the jerk on the flintstone bar or maybe they call it like the barney rubble bar it's the one with the stones at the end of it um but dude tom staltman back to back scotland he wins And then uh, Martins, my guy, who I thought was going to win the whole thing, he got second. Um, And then I think, uh, yeah, Novakov took third. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what happened, but um, Staltman brothers, bro. Particularly Tom, Scotland's got some real giants on their hands. If you were 18 and you were able to choose to be an elite athlete in any sport and could be guaranteed a career in said sport, what would you choose? Soccer. Soccer, or maybe NBA. Um, They tend to make the most amount of money. Uh, The NBA contracts are absurd. But, yeah, probably that. Probably NBA or soccer. Maybe tennis, something like that. Something where, like, you know, my wife and I were watching the U.S. men's game against uh, Morocco last night. And, like, they had Christian Pulisic up there, who, by the way, was berating fans for not wanting to spend $1,000 to go watch a friendly in Cincinnati. Like, sorry, Christian. This ain't, you know, Stanford Bridge. Um... And, like, the sponsors in the back were, like, Nike, Volkswagen, fucking Rolex, whatever. You know, again, the, 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 the clock for, like, the U.S. Open is always sponsored by Mercedes, Visa, you know. <laughs> like, sports that have, like, those kinds of sponsors probably are going to be the kinds of sports that have a pretty high degree of appeal and a significant earning potential. Yeah, that's what I would do. All right, let's see if there's anything else. Otherwise, we shall call it a day. A couple more. Luke, thoughts on the copycat factor and the insane amount of coverage these school shootings get being one of the major causes. Yeah, there's actually a lot of evidence. Oh, I had homework for you guys. I was going to tell you about it. I didn't get to it. Um, Okay. Yes. Thoughts on the copycat factor. There's actually some evidence to suggest that the way in which we cover these mass shootings actually inspires future ones. So there actually really is a question about to what extent, not that you can't or shouldn't cover them, I think that people should know about these horrific situations. This guy in Tulsa, do you see this? This fucking asshole goes and buys an AR-15 at 2 p.m. and at 5 p.m. goes into the hospital and kills the doctor who he blamed for, I guess, a insufficiently corrective back surgery that was still causing him pain went and go picked it up and went right to the hospital and just offed four people, including a uh, receptionist at the desk and another doctor and a patient. Wonderful country we're living in these days. Um, But yes, there actually is some evidence to suggest that that is real. But the reason I wanted to bring this up was um, one of the points I did not make last week about the gun control debate is that I made it a little bit, but I don't think I mentioned it very much, which was research. Research. Uh, Only California has collected information in states in terms of gun owners and where they live and their makeup and their, you know, man, age 25, whatever. Um, And they're being sued by the NRA because they don't want them to share that data with any kind of um, other group, any kind of research agency, which they're claiming is a privacy violation. Let me just be very clear about this. It is very interesting to me that that, uh, people who are not fans of gun control are also in the case of the gun lobby and various gun organizations and other folks aligned with gun interests have also done everything possible to tamp down, remove, or stop any studying of guns whatsoever, including through congressional action. In various cases, there. I mean, if you're if you're so right that um, these methods don't work, you should feel that the studies will exonerate your truths, not undercut them. It's very, very difficult for me to believe that the argument that gun control won't work is true when the same people making those claims are also fighting tooth and nail to stop any kind of actual studies of guns in any kind of real way. But something interesting has happened. Uh, Rand Corp, which does a lot of different, um, work in a lot of different fields, but a bit of a think tank in certain regards, but more than just that, they put out a study called the Science of Gun Policy. It's actually their second edition, and the first one came out a few years ago they now already have enough information subsequent to issue a second edition of it. You can get it for free at the at their website. Again, it's called The Science of Gun Policy. And what they lay out is a map of what these various gun control measures are, whether it's licensing, whether it's like mandatory waiting periods, whether it's red flag laws, you name it, all the various different ones. What the studies are that we have and what does it say? And what what is kind of interesting, what the RAND Corporation says is that there is some information to indicate that some of these methods can have uh, a measurable impact, some more than others. And, and by the way, a lot of it's inconclusive. But the main thing that they draw, and this is this they look at virtually every study possible. What they basically say is there's hardly any studies done on any of this stuff. And most of the studies done are total shit. <laughs> and in particular, the studies done that Uh, try to show that that guns actually improve safety are like categorically to be dismissed that they are the most poorly designed studies that they've ever seen now it's also true that there are some studies that show in fact many studies that show like for example um, I'll pick one mandatory waiting periods that they can have sometimes a very limited or even modest effect on what Uh, happens there. Also, they did find that there's actually a lot of evidence to suggest um, stand-your-ground laws increase homicides. Uh, Guns in homes where domestic violence takes place increases the risk that a gun will be used in a domestic violence dispute, right? So there's lots of other things that they found that totally counteract that. But in terms of finding like a real workable set of solutions, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think anything that would be the first thing you would want to say is, the first thing you would want to say is, significantly more research has to go into this. So we can actually get a clear sense of what doesn't really work, what works okay in certain situations. Like, for example, with red flag laws. Now, some of these are going to have civil rights components, but a red flag law, if you guys may not know, is basically a law that would trigger a court or a law enforcement agency to take away someone's guns if they are deemed an imminent threat to themselves or others. And what they have found with red flag laws, and by the way, they're all designed differently state to state, jurisdiction to jurisdiction how do you know one case from the other what they found is that they're actually very beneficial for um, stopping or at least delaying suicides suicides via gun death anyway Um, it's not so clear that there's any kind of real component to stopping a gun violent crime externally right so it's a question of like people like oh we should do red flag laws because that sounds really good okay and again there isn't enough studies to declare one way or the other. Oh, now we know they work. Now we know they don't. We, we, we're we barely, like, to me, it took them all that time to get the first edition. And it is good that the second edition only took about three or so years. But the but the authors of the study, which looks at, again, all of the other studies out there, is that most of the studies out there we can't even use. Studies that purport to show guns actually increase safety, there's like, like zero evidence for that whatsoever. That's just total nonsense. But that what is true about gun control measures still is very much a matter of debate and significantly more research is done. If you are confident, if you are confident in your position, whatever that may be, you should believe that the research will exonerate you over time. That is what I believe. At a bare minimum, I would like to know what works and what doesn't and how well it works and how well it doesn't. That is in desperate need of more study. Surely we can agree that 19 dead children in Uvalde and now four people dead and was it Tulsa, Oklahoma and everybody else involved. Surely we can agree that their deaths merit perhaps some not merely introspection, but some rigorous statistical and analytical work by qualified professionals to see what kind of measure, what, how, how do we understand Gun violence. How do we understand gun deaths? What are the various trigger points? What are the various ways in which it materializes itself? And what are other economic conditions that bring it about? All of these things, socioeconomic, political, you name it. We don't have nearly enough of it. But if you'd like to see what does exist out there in a very sort of comprehensive and clear form, you can get the PDF at the Rand Corporation's website, the science of gun policy it's about as comprehensive a look on what actually is out there that uh, and what it says with the giant caveat that we barely know anything by, by direct virtue of the gun lobby and various gun interests blocking every attempt at doing actual research around this which I think should tell you all you need to know yeah someone's like did you see the uh, world's strongest man results of course I did My friend thinks based off of the strength of being a man, he could beat any of the women in the top 15 strawweight. He's 5'9 and 175. How dumb is he? I mean, he's not totally dumb. He's pretty dumb. I mean, a big dude eventually is going to land a big punch on a smaller woman, and that's going to have an effect. Like, a lot of these women are going to be able to, like get under and around that but like you know if there's a he's 5'9 175 I mean he's pretty stupid but like if you had a 200 pound man even if he was untrained you know mm, it could get a little dicey there even then I, I've seen Shevchenko in person she is I've had her I've met her I've had her in studio a couple times she is you know intimidating to put it mildly <laughs> maybe not her but yeah like uh, that's not straw weight I get but you know what I'm saying like um You know, she's 10 pounds apart. Um, So, yeah. So, yeah, there is a little bit of that. Uh, You you just don't want to sleep on, like, there's a weight class for a reason. Um, How much can training overcome those differences? A lot. A lot. But not not in totality. So, your friend is mildly to moderately stupid. But not, like, completely stupid. How about that? And then last but not least, hope you have a, uh, hope the rest of your week is better. Me too, man. It's been a bad one. It's been a bad one. All right. I'm not going to annoy you guys with the rest of this. Uh, I'll leave it there at that. I appreciate you guys watching very much. It means a lot to me. I hope you guys are doing well. Again, one more time. No, people keep asking with the rank in BJJ. I don't have a high rank. I don't have any rank that would in any way matter. I do have some rank, but not a lot. None of that should matter. Even if I had a higher rank, I guess that would change things a little bit, but any argument I make does come from experience on the training mats, but no argument I make is from authority. The argument I make for various things is based off of what I can, I got a lot of that, you can't take that from me. But I was not a high achiever, I was not impressive, I never competed one time, I never wanted to, it never interested me. I just, I just wanted to learn, I just wanted to learn. So um, that's what that's that's what training meant to me. So people were poking and prodding around, trying to figure out like it would like illuminate the debate. It wouldn't. It wouldn't change to me. It wouldn't change anything. You're know, like, if that's the case, then why not say it? Because I want everyone to focus on the arguments that I'm making. I don't. I, I cannot come to you and be like, oh, you know, I have a black belt from Pedro Sauer. I do not. I do not have one. I have a uh, Golden Gloves championship in boxing. I do not. I was a state champion slash Division One qualifier. I was not. That was not any of these things. I'm not any of those things. I'm just a guy who paid attention and asked a lot of questions and spent a lot of time trying to understand this stuff. And then trying to take a small portion of that and give it to folks who have none of it. Right? That's the other part about this conversation. Like when I do tape study, you know, if you go to college, for example, there's you know, economics 100, 200, 300, 400, and, and, and various levels in between. I don't imagine that I'm teaching 400 level economics, right, or the rough equivalent. I'm, I'm probably closer to one or two. That, that's what I'm for. I, I'm not, I always tell you guys this is not complete because it's not complete. I don't pretend that this is the final and definitive account because I know it's not the final and definitive account. I don't have the ex- expertise to say such a thing. But what I do try to say is here are my claims, and then here's my evidence for my claims. See what you think about that. I do have enough experience to at least know my way around. Um, A fight in various dimensions, but I don't in any way pretend that this is like, you know, my, my analysis is on par with what a striking coach could tell you or what a BJJ coach could tell you or what a wrestling coach could tell you, but it most certainly is not. It's enough for a certain kind of person to get something out of it. That's it. That's all I hope to do. There's a lot of people who never get a chance to train or who've trained a little bit who don't really understand. There's a lot of folks, a lot of folks like that. In fact, I would argue that's the biggest group. How do we give them some information that they can then use as a guidepost to understand fights better? That's, that's all I'm trying to do. No more, no less. Hope that helps. All right. Thank you very much. I greatly appreciate it. Uh, thumbs up on the video. Hit subscribe. I'll try to get this up as soon as I can on podcasting, and um, it's appreciated. Luke Thomas News. If you want the live chat on Tuesdays as opposed to Thursdays, please let me know. Okay. Uh, with that out of the way... I think it's time we call it a day. I will see y'all next time.